I'd like to take you now to John's Gospel. John 19, verses 38 through 42. This is the burial. It is a section that is oftentimes overlooked in these events, but it is very much worth our attention. Uh, John 19, verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. We just want to wrestle with a question together for just a few minutes, if we may, and that is as we look at the burial and consider what takes place there, what do we learn? What do we learn as we watch Jesus being buried by Joseph and Nicodemus. Here's what we learn. Jesus will do whatever it takes to save us. That's what we see in the burial, the burial of our Savior. He will go to whatever length, whatever depths it takes to save us, to secure us, to make us his own. Now, let's just kind of Delve into this, if we can, for just a little bit. If we may, enter the scene with me, if you can do that. Enter the scene. So the, the text starts off here in verse 38. After these things. What things? What things? Well, the things that have been read of already. We've, we've looked at Matthew's account and Mark's account and Luke's account and, and John. John is referring to those very same things. He is referring to the crucifixion. He's referring to Jesus as being stripped naked and nailed for all the world to see. He is referring to the sign, the placard, the, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They're nailed up behind his head. Uh, these things include the robbers and the mockery of the passers-by, the crowds, the religious officials, and actually the robbers as well. All of that, all of that are included in these things, after these things, and his, his death, his death. After his death, that is included in these things, his death where <clears throat> he breathes his last, he volunteers his life, he truly gives himself up, utterly voluntarily in a way no one ever could. His death, uh, the words that are spoken, the piercing, the spear rammed, jabbed up between his ribs and the flow of the blood and the water coming forth. All of that, all of that, John is, includes when he says these things. That's what was meant by that, what was felt in that. Well, Again, the scene, 
the dehumanizing, absolutely dehumanizing, objectifying brutality that he experienced. The messaging of the officials, the arrogance, just the, the arrogance, taking upon themselves, thinking themselves, this, this delusion of power and the, what they're communicating to, to everyone. We're in charge here. What we say is what is. And if you don't do as we say, then look at him. You're going to get what he got. Crass, ugly, brutality, messaging. And then the man, the man himself. What do we see? What has he been through? The worst injustice the universe has ever seen. The absolute worst. Beyond any pale. There's no comparison. No comparison whatsoever. And a rejection. A rejection of his people. A rejection of his followers. A rejection of his father. That is what he's experiencing. And such compassion at the same time, such compassion shown towards the people there, the onlookers. A prayer for forgiveness. His eyes, when he sees, eyes that were likely partially swollen shut from the beatings that he's experienced up to this point. When his eyes open and he beholds his mother there at the foot of the cross and his dear friend John, he entrusts the care of his beloved mother into the beloved disciple. The thief, the penitent thief, what a promise he gives to that man. The compassion, the compassion of our Lord in such circumstances, such horrendous circumstances. It's as though you, he can't help but love. It's as though that's just what it is in him. It's just what comes out of him is love. And yet at the same time, if you're there, if you're there, are you not confused? Are you not bewildered? How can this be? I thought, I thought, I hoped he was the Christ. But he can't be. Not like this. So we were entering the scene. And we're very confused. Now let's consider two key figures here. Joseph of Arimathea and uh, Nicodemus. Um, Joseph, uh, we know in that uh, he, his some, there's something of a tapestry when you look at the four Gospels, they all speak to his role in this. This is the first time at, at this point in the, the story, if you will, where we're hearing of him. And this is, I'll just read you a, a, a summary of something when you 
weave all those threads together. This is the composite picture we have of, of Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, he asked Pilate for permission to bury the body of Jesus. No mention is made of Joseph prior to this point in the narrative, but the four Gospels paint a brief yet vivid portrait. Joseph was a rich man who was a member of the Sanhedrin and a secret disciple of Jesus. While being a high-standing member of the Jewish community, he had not consented to the ruling council's decision. Joseph was a good and righteous man who was actively looking for the kingdom of God. His request to bury Jesus required a good deal of courage since it makes his sympathy for Jesus public at a time when such sympathy could be and certainly would be dangerous. That's the tapestry that we have when you bring the threads together of Joseph. Now, Nicodemus, what do we know of him? With Nicodemus, it's not so much a tapestry as it is a progression. Now, he is not mentioned in the other Gospels, but he's mentioned three times in John's Gospel. The first time, you may remember this, this is John chapter 3. He comes to Jesus at night and learns of the necessity of a new birth. That's early on. He honors Jesus by calling him rabbi, acknowledges that Jesus does come from God, and yet at the same time, he is clearly struggling to understand what Jesus is saying that night. Okay, we read of him again. John 7, verses 50 and 52. Nicodemus, in the context of a meeting with the other Pharisees, uh, he, de he defends Jesus when the other Pharisees are speaking against him, seeking his arrest. Nicodemus argues that Jesus should, be, should receive, rather, should receive a fair trial. And now here, the third and final time we read of Nicodemus in John 19, he's offering the 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to prepare Jesus' body for burial. It's worth noting, and no few commentators pick up on this, that there's clearly the, the sense in which um, whether Nicodemus understands it or not, John seems to make, want the reader to understand this was a royal burial. So that's Joseph and that's Nicodemus. What do they do? Well, uh, Joseph goes to Pilate. We've already said that. Together, the two of them take the body of Jesus. If you can imagine what that would have been like because we're talking about the living Savior now. We're talking about a corpse, a bloody, mangled corpse. They take the body of Jesus. They bind it up in the linen cloths, presumably also wrapping within it the, the spices and the aloe. And they take that body, and likely it's their servants that are doing most of this. These are two very wealthy men, you know, and together in some way, they are getting this body into that freshly hewn tomb. Now, what are they showing in this? I've already said great courage because they're stepping forward. And this is a dangerous thing to do. And they are stepping forward still. Great generosity. Joseph uh, is giving up this tomb or at least the, the priority place in that tomb. Uh, and then, of course, Nicodemus with the 75 pounds, I really have no idea what the dollar amount of that would be, but clearly 
clearly quite expensive. So courage and generosity, and we also have to say devotion. Devotion to their master. Even, even though it looks like it's over. But can we reflect a little bit more on this? Going back to their experience and thinking about what we're learning here of Jesus in this, in their experience. I'll take you back to the verbs that are used just in the text that I read a moment ago, verses 38 to 42. The verbs that are used in connection with Jesus. They took him or took his body. They bound the body and they laid it, laid it in a tomb. Now this is not the first time that Jesus, grammatically speaking, has been a direct object in a sentence. If you speak to him, he's the direct object. If you ask something of him, he's the direct object. You get the idea. But he is really for the first time, strictly speaking, completely speaking, being acted upon here. The actor of the cosmos is now the subject. It's the ultimate descent. He could not go any further at this point. He could not go any further. He has gone down, 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 down as far as possible. It would seem that he is not content with half measures towards his beloved people. He is not willing to simply treat symptoms. If you want to think in terms of treating a cancer, he's not, he's not content to just spray a little Listerine on it or to scrape a little off the surface. No, he's going underneath it bring it all out to the uttermost, to the uttermost cost of himself. He's going as far down as possible to get down beneath, beneath it all. He is fully committed, fully committed to his Father's glory, his Father's mission, to his people's good. As I said earlier, he is willing to do whatever is necessary to save and secure, to make us his own, even if it means the author of life being killed and buried. He will do whatever is necessary to save us. He will go to the uttermost depths, the greatest lengths. And friends, what can we take away from here with that? With that knowledge, that certainty, that confidence. We have no need to wonder no need to wonder, to fear, or be troubled about our past. He has said, it is finished. We have no need to wonder or fear or be troubled about our present. The suffering we may be enduring, the silence from God we may be feeling. We need not panic. Because whatever else is going on, it cannot mean 
we see the body, he will not abandon us. He will to go to the utter lengths. We have no need to wonder, fear, be troubled about the past, the present, or the future because he is for us. And I hate to give you a spoiler for Sunday, he's with us. He's with us. Let me end with this, sir. Reading just a couple lines from, uh, I, don't, I honestly don't know much about this gentleman, Edward Shalito, a poem from, uh, I'm thinking this is the 19th century. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone.